All right, the book of Jonah tonight, the gospel according to Jonah. So find your place there in Jonah and don't get scared. I mean, we only preached five verses this morning. We'll do the whole book tonight, but uh, uh, it, won't, uh, it won't take us that long. Um, just want to bring out some things that I think are evidently there. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. All right. Um, the gospel according to Jonah. I'm going to give you, I think, I don't know, they're not in the bulletin. Uh, I'm going to give you these four points in case you get sidetracked, and you may not remember them, and that's fine, but just the four points for me establish Jonah's gospel, uh, and hopefully I'll bring those out somewhat well tonight. But the first point is going to have to do with the inability of man, uh, and you're going to see some things in Jonah that show man's inability. Uh, the second thing is going to be the initial response of people who are regenerate. So when God does regenerate someone, there is a response uh, to this work of regeneration. Uh, they respond in some sort of way. The third thing that we're going to see is the indwelling power of the gospel. So this man has not the ability. God regenerates him, and then he dwells in him causing him to have certain ways of life. And then lastly, I think Jonah's gospel, and we don't want to miss this, is that it brings out very clearly the indelible character of God. It's like indelible. It can't be erased. Here's God's character. No matter what you think of theology and doctrine and whatever all your views are, this is who God is, and Jonah's going to give us that in chapter 4. Now, I don't, this could take too long, but let me give you a slight introduction to a newfound person that I've run across. His name is Rolf Bernard. Um, I never heard of Rolf Bernard, uh, but I just, this is going to be a very minor introduction to a very large biography, but I'm bringing this out because it's a little bit fitting with this first point of Jonah and the inability of man. Rolf Bernard grew up under a, a godly influence, got, godly parents, and um, his parents dedicated him to gospel ministry when he was a child. They just didn't tell him that, but they did dedicate him and pray that he would be used to be a preacher. They just didn't communicate it to him. So life goes on. The boy is pretty stinking intelligent, and what he wants to do is be successful, make a lot of money, and get a position, and, and be well-known, and be influential in life. They move to Lubbock or Amarillo, somewhere out in West, and uh, eventually uh, he ends up at school in Baylor, Baylor University. You have to understand, Baylor's a Baptist college. Well, here he is in college, and he's learning and growing to be a lawyer. So he's in law studies, and, and so he's really, really smart, and he's offered a very esteemed position in a law firm as soon as he graduates. And somewhere in this point, the parents said, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. We dedicated you to the Lord to be a preacher of the gospel. And he's like, that doesn't fit what I want. I want, you know, to be this lawyer and make all of this money. 
So this started this battle. It's pretty interesting because at school, he's one of the most popular students on the campus. He's in drama. He's on the debate team. He wins all the debates. He's very influential, very charismatic personality, and uh, hates God. He just hates God. And so on the Baptist campus, he starts an infidel club. So if you don't believe God, join my club. And so he just would lobby and influence these confessing Christians to be infidels with him. Fairly influential because the club grew to the number of 300. He had 300 people in the infidel club. He says, it's a quote from one of his sermons, um, he knew that being saved would mean that he would have to be a public preacher. The way he handled this, he said, I became an infidel by day and a prayer by night. Infidel by day and a prayer by night. He said, by day I was so bitter, I got so miserable, I had to find refuge. I had to crawl into the dust just to get a little peace. He's hiding from God, right? So I found, I found out there was no God, I said. I organized an infidel club in my college. 300 young Baptist college students joined me. By night, when nobody's around, I would pray to God to save me. So in the face of the public, he's an infidel, but at night he's asking God to save him. He says, I was an orator, I was a college debater, I was a Shakespearean actor, I I was the big shot in those days, and I was the most prominent man on campus when I organized the infidel club, I led a lot of people to hell. Later, let me give you one more. I'd have you to understand that I have a scholarship in the best law school in the world. I have you to understand that I had the offer already of a junior partnership in the biggest law firm in Texas when I was out of school. You wouldn't catch me preaching, being a little old hitchhiker preacher, living on cornbread and water, and everybody cursing me and talking about me. I'm not doing that. Now, there was never a day in my life that I didn't want to keep out of hell, but I wasn't going to preach. I was cursing God by day and begging God to save me by night, but I ain't going to preach. For five years, I tried to get God to save me, and every time I would say this, I will not preach. I don't care how little it is. If that's where your rebellion heads up, it must be crushed. If it's not, if not, there is no salvation. I know what it is to pray and to cry, and to seek, and everything else. This easy belief stuff to get somebody to cry a little bit, make some kind of a profession, and call it salvation, is deception. You must be willing to surrender your all to Christ and do his will. Christ must be revealed to you. That is salvation. And the story goes on, but obviously he is converted, and obviously he becomes a mighty unknown preacher. Unknown. You ask these famous evangelists, I've heard the name, but I don't know nothing about him. Nobody knows nothing about him. But you can look him up on Sermon Audio, and there's a lot of sermons. Never wrote a book, never was popular, nobody knew nothing, but he spent his life winning people to Christ, doing the very thing that he was running from. Kind of like, you know, Jonah. 
All right, so let us take a glance at this book tonight, just a short overview on the gospel according to Jonah. This is obviously the route that Jonah took. Uh, The inability of man, you'll find this in chapter 1. We find it true of Jonah, and we find it true of the mariners. I don't know that you'll hear anything new, but maybe something will encourage you tonight to see God's sovereignty and his work in human lives. But the opening verses, let us at least see those again, hear those read. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. I pause in the reading to say, the word of the Lord is not complicated. It's very clear, very simple. There's no problem with understanding. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. So he's going to flee, and note the text, he's going to flee from the presence of the Lord. So again, I remind us tonight, where are you going to go to escape the presence of God? As I've told this story so many times before, but my professor friend, Dr. Cable, laying in the floor of a bathroom in his own puke, as he's laying there in that floor, in his mind is the sign that says Jesus saves, and that's all that he can see in his drunken stupor laying in that floor. Even in the floor of his own drunkenness, he can't get away from the presence of God. If you're going to run from the call of God, you'll run from the gospel, where are you going to go to escape God's presence? So he goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. He pays the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. And again, I've got to get away from the presence of God. I don't like all this conviction stuff, and I don't want God telling me what to do. As we understand here, the inability of man in Jonah, he cannot run away from God no matter how hard he tries. That's a beautiful thing that you or someone you're concerned about, church, they can't escape God. How many in this very room have a broken heart over a family member that's lost? How many people have a broken heart over a coworker, a friend, an associate that doesn't know the gospel? And you're like, I shared the gospel, I gave them a track, I prayed for them, and nothing happened. Be reminded tonight, they can't escape God. That in your life, as you intercede with God for them, God has ways. God has power. God has grace. God has mercy. How many people have been converted by the prayers of their mother? How many have been converted by the loving discipline and correction of a father? How many have been converted by the loving patience of a friend who would go to another friend and tell them the gospel? Look, God has all kinds of ways. We pray, we trust, and we believe that God can do whatever he jolly well pleases at any time, in any place, with any person. Church, don't give up on the unconverted. God may save them at any moment. May you be the one who continues. (laughs) Yes, that's true for Rolf Bernard. (laughs) His professor every time he would run across him he would say Rolf I'm not gonna let you go to hell so he'd say to him I'm not gonna let you go to hell 
He gets so mad. But the professor just kept saying it and just kept praying. You know what? Ralph didn't go to hell. God's presence is everywhere. Trust him. But also note this. In rebellion, see it over and over and see it in Jonah. You want to rebel against God? You want to reject God? You want to deny his command? Then you must pay your own way. Do note, he went down and he paid the fare. You're going to run from God? You're going to run from him on your own money, on your own sacrifice. God's not going to help you rebel. If you took just a moment and turned to the book of Exodus, you would see the opposite in Exodus 2. And you would see this with Moses and his mom there. Pharaoh's daughter said to her in Exodus 2.8, Go, so the girl went and called the child's mother. You see, she's doing right. She's obeying. She hides Moses in a basket. She's done everything right. She's trying to honor God. And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. When you're obedient, God pays the way. When you're in rebellion, you have to pay your own way. That's what Jonah learns. Jonah's rebellion, and by the way, Jonah's rebellion accomplished him getting zero feet away from God. So there's Jonah and his inability. And then we have these mariners in the story, which is always fascinating to me because these mariners are pagans. They're complete pagans. They don't worship Yahweh. They're, they're, not, they're not honoring the God of heaven. Uh, they're idolaters and they're pagans. That's, that's just who they are. So you got, you got this prophet of God and these pagans on the same boat. And one of the things I, I like about the pagans is, is even pagans know that God's in control of the weather. You see that in chapter 1. If you followed the chapter and read it out, it's like, man, what do we got to do for the sea to quieten down for us? But because it became more and more tempestuous, we realize you've done something with God. God controls the weather. What do we got to do to get your God to stop the storm? Even the pagans knew God was in control. But look at verse 5, verse 11, and verse 13 in the aspect of these mariners not having the ability to save themselves. Verse 5. Here's what they do. This is man's attempt. The mariners were afraid. I get it. They cry out to his God, little g. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. You'll see that in the New Testament. You see that in all these storm-tossed events. Get all the stuff out. Maybe the ship won't sink. But Jonah, he's sleeping. Okay. But they made their effort to save themselves in verse 5. You look in verse 11. In verse 11, then they said to him, this is the pagan mariners, they say to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? We know what the issue is. The issue is you've done something with God and God's doing something with you and we've been caught in the middle, so what do we got to do with you? What do we have to do, we do, in order to get safe? All right, then in verse 13, nevertheless... They didn't want to throw him in the sea. The men rowed hard. They dug the oars in deep. What are we saying here? They used all of their effort. They used all of their energy. They tried everything they could to get back to land where they're safe. But the text says they could not. With all of my effort and everything invested, I got no closer to land. 
the inability of man. Even complete pagans, with all of their efforts, made no progress in saving themselves. In a sense, we could apply it this way, just from some Bible verses, and all of these could be sermons of themselves. Let me give you three verses, uh, Psalms. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. This is my condition, David says. Ephesians, a classic verse we use so often, you were dead, dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead people don't have the ability to produce their own life. John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the authority to become the children of God. Well, how in the world did they become the children of God? John says, I know there's three ways it did not happen. It was not by blood, it was not by the flesh, and it was not by man. The only way this thing can happen is, is you must be birthed out by God. God's got to do something in order for you to have life. It's a, a classic illustration. is no more clear than a Lazarus situation. How is Lazarus coming out of the tomb? A word must be given. Uh, something must be spoken. You've all heard the illustration. It's been overused. The reason he said Lazarus by name, because if he just said come forth, everybody in the cemetery would have come forth. But he called his name Lazarus. Oh, blessed day, right? Do you remember? Anybody here? And one day, you were sitting in church. You were in Sunday school. You were in a tent meeting, revival meeting. You are driving down the road listening to the radio. And it was that day your name was called. And you looked to Christ and you believed. This is a gospel. God reveals himself through his son. And he calls you by name. He gets your attention. One day you hate God. One day you're an infidel. And the next day, you're head over heels in love with Jesus. You say, can you explain that? No. You just believe Christ and everything is changed. The inability of man magnifies the power of God. And you see in Jonah, when these men recognize their inability, what do they do? You look at verse 14. And in verse 14 it says this, Therefore... Since our ability won't save us, therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish. Is this not the gospel? O Lord, I see my sin. I feel my sin. I know I'm going to hell. O Lord, would you save me that I do not perish? It's the gospel. I see all of my inabilities. I see all the train wreck of my heart. What am I left to do? Respond and say, Lord, save me lest I perish. Don't make it complicated. Don't confuse this thing and come up with some kind of seminary degree. Just get to be like seven years old or 20 years old or 90 years old and say, you know what? I'm on my way to hell. Is there any way you can save me where I don't perish? Because you're my only hope. Is that not what we believe? Is that not what we preach? You say, well, you don't play all these songs and sing 50 different lines trying to get people to come forward. Look, right where you are, call upon Christ to save you. 
If, you, if he saves you, all the rest of the things will fall in place. You fall in love with Jesus, and everything else will line itself out. You'll be scheduling a baptism. You'll be reading your Bible. You'll be praying. You'll be wanting to go on a mission trip. You'll be wanting to sing praises to God. And your whole life will change because he saved you. This is what we do. Secondly, the initial response of the regenerate, chapter 2. Chapter 2 actually starts in chapter 1, verse 17, but throughout 117 to the end is actually chapter 2. Let me say to you, dead. Obviously, everybody knows my view that Jonah died in the fish. I ain't got time to pan that out tonight, but that's the condition of the lost is they're dead. Jonah is dead in the belly of this fish. So I want to say to you from that, what? Just to be clear here where we understand, man does not need assistance. Man does not need simply encouragement. Youth camp or whatever, uh, some kind of conference. We don't need a pep talk from a cheerleader. Men need life. (laughs) That's what they need. I mean, you stir people up emotionally, but the root issue is, is a dead man needs life. Understand, whether you believe or not, understand this. This is a supernatural miracle. We're talking about dead people living. I've had dead people being raised up and living life to the full. That's what our gospel is. The death of Jonah illustrates and prophesies the impending death and resurrection of Jesus. You say, what's the confirmation? Of all the things I could say, I'll just repeat what Jesus says. Jesus says, just as Jonah, in the same way as Jonah, in a similar, mirrored, paralleled way, look at Jonah and look at me. Look at Jonah, look at me. If Jonah's not dead, I suppose Christ didn't die. Jonah died, Christ is going to die. Jonah's in the belly three days, the Son of Man is in the belly of the tomb three days, and on the third day, Jonah's spit out, and on the third day, Jesus walks out. The death of Jonah illustrates this. Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The initial response, when life comes, when you receive life, you've been saved, prayer. 2, 1 and 2, he begins to pray. Then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah called to the Lord. He says his responses. Verse 7, when my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you. This is the response of the converted. The soul that receives a new heart and a right spirit naturally begins to commune with his God. Communion with God is the natural response of the regenerate. By the way, I just think it's impossible to fall in love with somebody and never talk to them. That doesn't make any sense on any level. I'm so goofy. I love my dog and I talk to him. He doesn't know how to talk. I mean, it's just the way it is. You fall in love with the Lord and don't talk to him. I'm really confused. And one of the things that comes along with prayer, very clearly, is thanksgiving. Look at 2 verse 6. You brought up my life from the pit, the last line, O oh Lord my God. You, you're the one who brought me up. Look at verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, 
will sacrifice to you. Now, now we take a prophet who says, I'm not going to do what God tells me. I'm not going to go where he tells me to go. And now you see him giving this praise and thanksgiving to the God of heaven. Every soul that is regenerate in some capacity offers thanks. Thanks is given. We give thanks in prayer. We give thanks in physical service. We give thanks in practical obedience. All these ways we're saying to God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. If it wasn't for you, it's, it's a heart of thanksgiving. Now, maybe we should have sung it, but I didn't have time to get it to Jeff. And so I remind you of Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend's song. I think it's a good song, and I think it expresses what we ought to express to the Lord when he saves us. And the title of the song is, My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. Right? My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again who crushed my curse of sinfulness clothed me in his light he wrote his law of righteousness with power upon my heart my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who walks beside who floods my weaknesses with his strength and causes fear to fly whose every promise is enough for every step I take, sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who reigns above, whose wisdom is my perfect peace, whose every thought is love. For every day I have on earth, every day I have on earth, is given to me by my king. So, I'll give my life. I'll give my all to love and follow him. Why? Because my heart is filled with thankfulness. I submit to you, don't ever move beyond being thankful for salvation. And then Jonah, with this thankfulness and this prayer, gives a confession. Verse 9 What I vowed I will pay. Here's my confession. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's His, and He gave it to me, and I am thankful. My whole life has been radically changed, and I'm no longer the same anymore. I've been delivered. I've been set free. I've been forgiven, and I have life to the full. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and by grace, He has given it to me. Hope that's your testimony. Chapter 3, the indwelling power of the gospel. We saw verses 1 through 5 this morning, and we see now the mercy of God to give the same command again for Jonah to go to Nineveh. Obedience is the path of the prophet now, whether he likes it or not. God's sovereignty has overridden Jonah's rebellion. Would somebody in the room tonight be thankful that God didn't let you have your way? I've come up with some bonehead ideas in my life, and it's flashing through my mind all my stupidity. I am so glad that God overwhelmed my will and made his will come to be in my life. Because if my will was left in charge, it's a train wreck. But God intervened in providence in so many ways to, in a sense, to make me do what I didn't even want to do. And now that I'm doing it, I'm so glad he made it happen. 
Anybody? Anybody like that? Aren't you glad you didn't get your way? Gentiles in our text. Here comes this power of the gospel. They believe God. They repent of their sins. They believe him and repent. And they find in verse 10 that God is merciful. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, could I just pause tonight and remind us again, in case somehow we forgot, somehow we got misguided along the way, that when it comes to the power of the gospel, the indwelling power of the gospel, the word repentance can never be removed from the equation. You know, you've probably heard me say it before. I keep going on these past things. But however many years ago at the fireworks show, I'm preaching there at the fireworks show, and this lady comes up, and she was so mad. She's worked so hard to get her neighbor to come to a Christian event is what she tells me to my face in this loud pitched voice screaming at me. I've worked so hard to get my lost neighbor to come to a Christian event, and I come here, and you're preaching that people must repent, and Jesus never said that. You do understand the first words recorded of Jesus in the Bible are repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Then she was even madder. I'm like, you're offended because you came to an event and somebody preached repentance and faith. Look, this is the, this wicked Ninevite people, when, they saw, when, when, God saw, when God saw what they did, he, how they turned from their evil way, that's repentance. We're not going to be pagans no more. We're not going to go for ourselves anymore. We're repenting in dust and sackcloth and ashes. We're hoping that God would be merciful. It's the gospel. It's the power that dwells within. And I want to say this. I'm saying these things on, on purpose because so people are, we're such a pansy generation. Everybody's offended. It don't matter what you say, people get offended. But let me at least say this out loud. Those who get offended by the truth of God, they could experience mercy, right? I mean, you don't have to stay offended. You could experience mercy. All the offended person needs to do if they're offended at truth is submit to the truth. And if they would submit to the truth, they could receive mercy and the offense would be obliterated. You say, give me an example. If a gay person is offended because we preach upon how God defines marriage, they don't have to be offended. They can just submit to the truth and say, what God has defined marriage to be is right. If a guy's offended because you preach on sobriety and he's a drunk, he could receive mercy if he had turned from his drunkenness and be sober under the influence of the gospel. The proud or the arrogant person could repent and humble themselves before God, and they could experience his favor. I just want to remind you tonight, I hear the conversations all the time with you, with others outside, this is offensive, this is offensive, this is offensive. Fine, call it like it is. You're offended, you don't have to be offended. Repent of what you're doing and embrace God by faith and receive mercy. This is the power of the gospel within, is that mercy would be applied to your life. The gospel Jonah preached is powerful enough to make dead people come to life. It's powerful enough to cause the believer to be obedient no matter what the flesh may say. Today, it's a great day to repent and believe the gospel. Today's a great day to obey what the Lord is telling you to do. Amen or no? Amen. 
Wherever he leads, I will go. Right? That's what we sing. Okay, fine. We'll move on. You'll like the fourth point a lot better. The indelible character of God. You see five characteristics. These are not five long points. They're just here in our text. But look over here in Jonah chapter 4. And look what Jonah says. No matter what his feelings are, no matter what you think about Jonah as a person, this is what he says. Verse 2. Prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Skipping those realities there, this is what Jonah knows. I knew that you are a gracious God, that you're a merciful God, you're slow to anger, and you're abounding in steadfast love, and you relent from disaster. That's who God is. Now, the verses, if you want to pin them down, we won't look them all up tonight just for the sake of time. You have Jonah 4.2. You have Exodus 34.6. You have Numbers 14.18. You have Nehemiah 9.17. You have Psalms 86.15. And you have Joel 2.13. All of those references say almost the exact same thing that Jonah says here. Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalms 86, 15, Joel 2, 13. There's a couple of things added in those other verses. Let me give you the list and the addition. This is what Jonah says of God. He is gracious. Amen? He's gracious. He is merciful. Amen. He's slow to anger. Nehemiah 9.17 adds, Even though they deserved, he did not forsake them. He is abounding in steadfast love. In Exodus and Psalms, it adds, and faithfulness. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Also, he keeps steadfast love for thousands Exodus 34, 7 again. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. Exodus 34, 7 also says, He is just and will not overlook the guilty. Fifthly, the fifth characteristic, He is one who suffers grief over evil. He's one who suffers or relents over evil. Numbers 14, 18 Forgiving iniquity and transgression. This is our God. You, you struggle with whatever your soteriology is tonight, whether you believe this way, that way, or the other way. This is our God. You take humanity in all of their inability, and God comes on the scene, calls you by name, and takes you from death to life, and that happens, and you just naturally become thankful and you commune with God, and you give Him thanks because He saved you. And this power that's worked in your life reveals how merciful and good He is, and you learn the character of God, and you see the beauty of the character of God, and you spend the rest of your life pursuing Him. By the way, side note, not really a rabbit, but a side note perhaps. When I first came to this church, this person told me, we don't teach or preach from the Old Testament because 
In the Old Testament, God is only wrath. We teach from the New Testament because in the New Testament, God is love. And I said, well, let's have a challenge. I'll give the verses for grace and mercy from the Old Testament. You give them from the New Testament. We'll see who, who has the most verses. Because it's just a little snapshot of the ones I gave you. There's so much mercy, so much grace. By the way, I agree with Dr. Yule. There's not attributes. God is. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. God is kind. God is forgiving. That's his character in Genesis as well as in Revelation and everywhere in the middle. God stays the same. Don't divide God up into Old and New Testaments. Don't pull off a T.D. Jakes and lose your mind and become a heretic. This is who God is throughout. And I just submit to you, Jonah knew it. Whether he liked it or not is another issue, but he knew it. Well, for application to end the point in the sermon, all men in all generations are the same. Nothing's changed. No matter where you go in the world, They're depraved, and they're unable to save themselves. That's why we take the gospel. That's the only thing God's given us. Regeneration causes such a change to occur in an individual that they're never the same again. Repentance is internal, but it is exhibited externally. The character of God is eternally the same. And our relationship with him will be in agreement with how he defines himself. You say, chapter 4 is probably the hardest chapter. I know it's uh, another whole discussion. But if I summed up chapter 4, what is being taught here to Jonah is simply this. That God knows how to show pity. You're upset about a plant that came up in a night and perished in a night, and you have pity on the plant. Should not I have pity on more than 120,000 persons who don't know the right hand from their left hand? Chapter 4 says this is the character of God, to have pity, mercy, kindness, compassion to the undeserved. You say, yeah, I know that, and we are to imitate that. How could you do that? A billion ways over of people you'll see this week. How can you show them the love of Christ? There's little things. You go in a restaurant. You see somebody sitting over there. You think they look a little down. You go up there and you buy their lunch. You take them a gospel track and you tell them to have a great day. They go up to pay and they're like, the guy says, it's already paid. Pity. Mercy. Show kindness. Look for ways to serve other people and show the love of Christ that somehow the gospel would penetrate and they would be changed forever. Well, a very small portion tonight, but hopefully you'll see that Jonah's gospel is the same as Moses' gospel, the same as Isaiah's gospel, and the same as Paul's gospel. It's the same gospel because Luke tells us, sorry, in Hebrews, that it's an eternal gospel. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Jonah has radically altered my life in so many ways. I'm so thankful for the book. A little short, four chapters. I've read it so many times. And every time I read it, it speaks to me. I pray your church be encouraged, built up, and strengthened. And that they will leave here tonight thinking on your character of merciful, 
gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I pray that we would take that with us as a reality and we would live in relation to you in that way and that our lives would imitate and reflect your character in how we deal with other people that we rub shoulders with every day. We pray these things tonight by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen.